0: The History of the World podcast written and presented by Chris Hasler. Welcome to the History of the World podcast magazine. Hello everyone, welcome to the History of the World Podcast magazine with me Chris Hasler and the last History of the World Podcast magazine was on Christmas Day and if you remember we were talking about human ancestors but we started the story and never quite finished it off This week we're going to pick up that story again so when we uh, when we was discussing it last time We were talking about the human ancestors uh, that were not of the Homo genus and the first human ancestors that were of the Homo genus. We got as far as Homo heidelbergensis. Now many scientists suggest that Homo heidelbergensis is the most recent common ancestor of us, uh, us the modern human Homo sapiens, and Neanderthals, or what we may call Homo neanderthalensis. From the fossil records, we can determine that Homo neanderthalensis was all of the following. Large skulls with brain cases, holding a brain almost as big as a modern human. The top of the head sat more deep than the high brain cases of modern humans, and there was a significant brow ridge cross the top of the eyes. Large teeth much more reminiscent of hominin species of the past and no prominence of the chin. Powerful and stocky bodies a little shorter in height than the average modern human being. Barrel chested and large hands and feet. If you like your men a little rough around the edges the Neanderthal could have been the man for you. The Neanderthals were quite dexterous and also rather stylish. Near the town of Krapina, in the north of Croatia, the talons of an eagle were discovered in a sandstone rock shelter that was evidently occupied by Neanderthals as early as 130,000 years ago. The eagle talons show clear signs of being worked in such a way that they were likely to have once been part of a piece of jewellery, such as a necklace or a bracelet. This is the first discussion we have had in our podcast about clothing or body decoration, but it is thought that this was a human tradition that could have existed for a long time, maybe as a means to demonstrate that individuals were connected to one tribe, or even that their tribe was a tribe to be respected if the decoration was made from something as daunting as the teeth of a shark. Mousterian tool culture Culture. This leads us nicely into the technological advances of the Neanderthal man. Previously, we have followed the tool culture of prehistoric humans, from the Lamequian tools of the Australopithecines, to the Alderwan tools of Homo habilis, and then the Acheulean tools of Homo erectus. The tall culture of Neanderthals was the Mousterian. It is named after a French type site, much like the Acheulean. This time, the site is called Le Moustier and can be found in the Dordogne Department of France. It was first excavated in 1863 and a Neanderthal skull was discovered there in 1908. Mousterian tools have been recovered from sites across Europe to the Middle East and Northern Africa. Unlike the Acheulean tradition of manufacturing a tool from a stone core, the Mousterian tools demonstrated a technique referred to as the Levalois technique. The stone core on this occasion is prepared with hard and soft percussion. In other words, the core is worked using stone for hard percussion and bones and antlers for soft percussion. This worked stone core is then struck to produce flakes which can then be used as versatile tools. Certainly, a lot of contemplation would have had to have taken place to develop the correct size flake required, but it shows an advance in intelligence at least. So, we have established that stone tool technology had shown signs of advancement going into the age of the Neanderthals and that these hominins were also constructing wooden spears, whether they were hand weapons or projectiles or even both, which is questionable. However, it may have occurred to Neanderthal man that if he could combine a wooden shaft with a stone flake, then he would have made the first ever composite tool. That is, made up of two different materials. If we believe this then we have to ask the question how did Neanderthals actually attach the stone point to the wood handle? This question could be answered through the discovery of lumps of tar found at the Neanderthal sites of Italy and Germany. The tar is believed to have originated from the bark of the birch tree. If the bark is heated then the tar will emanate from it. And this is likely to be how the stone flakes were stuck to the wooden shafts. Neanderthals had invented the first glue. If we believe that the Neanderthal had evolved around 400,000 years ago, then we would have to wait between one hundred and two hundred thousand and 200,000 years afterwards to see the modern Homo sapiens emerge. We have finally reached the point in our story where we can discuss the current human being, Homo sapiens, us. It is traditionally believed that we evolved in Africa around 200,000 years ago. As ever, I like to feel the gaps in the chronology, but today I will find this a difficult task due to the lack of knowledge. Last time we discussed Africa, we had recognised that Homo Augusta was in the Great Rift Valley around one and a half million years ago. But we also identified in the last podcast on the Ice Ages that between one and a half and one million years ago, a migration of hominins crossed the Strait of Gibraltar into modern spain which hominin it is is open to debate i tend to favor the theory that a version of homo erectus that didn't leave africa evolved into homo agaster and either another version of homo erectus or indeed homo agaster itself migrated northwest on the african continent into spain and it evolved into homo antecessor homo heidelbergensis and Homo neanderthalensis. However, I might just be talking a load of rubbish due to my lack of knowledge, so I'm the last person you should listen to when making your own mind up. Somehow we have to identify how what happened between Homo agasta in the Great Rift Valley one and a half million years ago links to Homo sapiens 1.3 million years later. Chris Stringer, is an incredibly well-qualified physical anthropologist who works at the Natural History Museum in London. Born in 1947, he is often invited to voice his opinions on television documentaries on the very subject of human evolution. So if I were you, and I wanted to listen to either myself or Chris Stringer, I think I'd listen to Chris Stringer. Chris Stringer suggests through a helpful diagram that even though Homo erectus or Homo ergaster, which is often considered to be the African version of erectus, likely evolved to become Homo antecessor, It is likely that Homo antecessor actually died out and did not evolve to become Homo heidelbergensis. Instead, his diagram appears to favour Homo erectus evolving into Homo heidelbergensis and that this all happened in Africa. This theory would be supported well by Arthur Smith Woodward's discovery of a skull in northern Rhodesia, modern Zambia, in 1921. The skull was categorised as Homo rhodesiensis, but is thought to be very closely linked to Homo heidelbergensis. Now, If this is true then Homo heidelbergensis may have also migrated to Europe where it became Homo neanderthalensis but also stayed behind where it evolved to become Homo sapiens. This would mean that we believe that Homo heidelbergensis is the last common ancestor of Neanderthals and modern humans. The The Cradle cradle of of Homo Homo sapiens. Sapiens during the Homo erectus podcast, we introduced the second son of Lewis and Mary Leakey, Richard Leakey, and his colleague, Kamoya Kameyu. Leakey and Kameyu were working at a site in the Omo National Park in southwest Ethiopia between 1967 and 1974, and recovered the bones of an archaic Homo sapiens which was argon radiometric dated to be around 195,000 years old. It is this that led the scientific community to accept a date of around 200,000 years ago as the likely emergence of the first Homo sapiens. It has also led to the area being labelled as the cradle of Homo sapiens. However, Something very important happened in relation to some other Homo sapiens remains that had been discovered at Jebel Irhoud in modern-day Morocco in the 1960s, and have been dated as more recent. However, methods of dating have improved since the 1960s, and the age of the remains were recalculated in 2017 and demonstrated that these remains were actually nearer to 300,000 years old. A thermoluminescence technique of dating flint associated with the finds demonstrated that they had been heated around 300,000 years ago, which supports the recalculation. This would strongly suggest that Homo sapiens were already well on the way to evolving into the modern animal much earlier than originally thought. It would appear that if we want to understand the evolution of human species then we should refrain from being so definite about putting dates and locations on this subject which can often be our nature. Homo species gradually changed over a long period of time. So each generation hominins would have slowly become more and more like we are today over a very long period of time. While these generations are coming and going, they are also migrating over long distances as many animals do. We would have been constantly exploring our range opportunistically. We can be fooled into thinking that if one of our ancestors He curiously migrated over the Strait of Gibraltar from Africa into Europe that his son would not have migrated from Europe back into Africa for the same reasons. There's no reason for migration to be a one-way thing like a mysterious portal that opens and doesn't reopen for thousands of years. If we stop trying to be so definitive, then our understanding will surely improve. Physical Characteristics Homo sapiens have become a distinguished species for the following reasons. The face has become somewhat flat. If we look at our ancestors, their faces protruded by comparison. Our body shapes are slender and long. We are much more athletic compared to our ancestors and our long limbs allow our bodies to regulate heat well for when we are being athletic. Our skeleton is more lightweight, which also helps our athletic nature. Our brain had evolved into the large brain that we have today, much bigger than our ancestors, but similar to our cousins the Neanderthals. Our teeth are comparatively small compared to other hominins, as we choose easier to chew meats, such as seafood and soft fruit and vegetables. The other important physical development is within the pharynx and the larynx, which facilitates our very advanced ability to talk. Our speech can easily be taken for granted, but it is a very intricate and subtle control of our breathing apparatus and our vocal tract that enables us to speak in such a complex and articulate manner, and something that our ancestors would surely not have had. Even our cousins, the Neanderthals, could not speak with the skill that we do, but even they would be considered to have advanced vocal ability. There is always the possibility that we will discover more human species that existed on the planet than we are currently aware of. It only takes us a surprise archaeological discovery to send us into a frantic revision of our human history. One example is the discovery of Homo floresiensis. In 2003, a research team working in the Liangbua cave on the island of Flores, made an astonishing discovery. They found a near-complete skeleton of an adult female hominin, which dates to 80,000 years ago. Now, this would be all well and good if it were a Homo sapiens making its way from Asia across the islands to Australia and ending up at Majebbebe Rock Shelter 65,000 years ago. Our story would be nice and straightforward. The problem is, that this adult female is believed to have only stood at three and a half feet tall. However, with it only being one skeleton, you could say that there is a chance that the female was a deformed or diseased Homo sapiens. However, some of the wrist bones do not show the modern adaptations that can be found in Homo sapiens and Homo neanderthalensis species. They much more resemble the bones of Homo erectus. We have not seen a fully grown hominin of this size since around 2 million years ago in Africa as Homo habilis and in Western Asia as Homo georgicus. So if this is a genuine species of hominin it is around 6,000 moles and 2 million years out of place. Paleoanthropologists have proposed a new species called Homo floresiensis and with the dating of other artefacts at Liangbua Cave they suggest that it was alive between 100,000 and 50,000 years ago. Is there a reason why there could be a small hominin living on this remote island? Well, it is not completely out of the question that a species of Homo erectus could have made it to this island many thousands of years previously and settled on the island. The fact that this population became isolated on Flores with limited food resources and limited predation meant that there was an evolutionary advantage to having a smaller size. The smaller hominins would have needed to consume less energy to survive, an obvious advantage. Even if this sounds bizarre, this kind of evolution can be seen in other species of animals that are isolated to islands and are allowed to become smaller by a lack of predators. This is called island dwarfism and also exists on the island of Flores by its unique population of the now extinct stegodon elephants which also became significantly smaller on Flores. As of yet, no one has been able to completely dismiss the possibility that this mysterious population of humans evolved into a unique human over thousands of years, completely isolated from others. Assuming that Homo floresiensis did exist on the island of Flores, this also opens up the question as to whether Homo sapiens met them. And further to that, Were modern Homo sapiens in some way responsible for their disappearance? Certainly, on the face of it, Homo floresiensis or the Hobbit, as it is more affectionately known, wouldn't have stood a chance against the larger Homo sapiens if there was a competition for resources such as food. However, there is no evidence of such a meeting or such a competition. So we will have to wait for more discoveries to be made. At some point during our history, the modern human became the sole human species on planet Earth. The theatre for the disappearance of our last human companion, the Neanderthals, was Europe. Now before I venture into this story... I just want to address one form of terminology which has been traditionally used to describe early European modern Homo sapiens, that being Cro-Magnon man. Now the Cro-Magnon man is named after the Cro-Magnon rock shelter which had begun to be excavated from as far back as 1868. The remains found there were distinctly different from Neanderthal remains which had also started being discovered in the 19th century. This led into a fascinating fantasy world of Cro-Magnons versus Neanderthals, which captured the public imagination. However, I don't want to refer to early Homo sapiens in Europe as Cro-Magnons, as I would rather use Cro-Magnon to refer to the site which can be found at Les Aisies de Théaxiree, in the Dordogne Department of France. One of the most important sites when looking into the Homo sapiens migration into the Neanderthal European range and establishing what happened when they did is in modern day Romania. The findings at Peshterakuase, which translates to Cave with Bones, in southwest Romania, has kept the secret of some of the earliest European Homo sapiens remains from as long ago as around 40,000 years. So we could assume from this that there was a migration of Homo sapiens from the Levant in the Middle East into Europe from its southeastern side. What we have discovered from one particular fossil is that there is an abundance of Neanderthal DNA within it. The only clear explanation is that a Neanderthal must have been involved in its recent ancestry. Homo sapiens did not have a problem with choosing a Neanderthal as someone that they could reproduce with. Subsequent finds have been found to suggest that Homo sapiens migrated into areas of Italy, Switzerland, and France, and then as far northwest as the United Kingdom, which would likely have been accessible without the need of a sea crossing. Also, we can see that the Italian and Iberian peninsulas were populated quite early, but there isn't really anything to suggest a migration further north than modern-day Germany and the Czech Republic, suggesting that the Ice Age was preventing any quality of life for hominins in anywhere other than Central Europe and Southwards. It was around this era that we see very strong evidence of the human interest in art and ritual. The Red Lady of Paviland is a 33,000 year old skeleton dyed in red ochre which must be evidence of a ceremonial burial. Animal bones were turned into flutes and make no mistake about it they were created for the purpose of creating musical melodies as demonstrated by the pierced holes which would change the pitch of the sound in exactly the same way as a modern wind instrument. We will investigate all of these aspects of the emergence of art and ritual in a specially dedicated podcast. In terms of the Neanderthal disappearance, what can we determine happened? Firstly, there is a question of interbreeding. This happened... But the anatomically modern human is really the species that prevailed over the Neanderthals. So although interbreeding happened, Neanderthal was probably not the most popular first choice of Homo sapiens for a breeding partner. So although Neanderthal is in our DNA, it was not a preference. It was obviously something that happened before non-African humans colonised the rest of the known world. A small but significant percentage of Neanderthal DNA exists in all non-African modern day humans. So any European interbreeding event between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals that happened around 40,000 years ago does not appear to have had any further consequence to human history than had already probably taken place. Any theory of a mass genocidal rampage of Homo sapiens spreading across Europe in a warrior stole brutally butchering any unfortunate Neanderthal that it come across is not really supported by archaeological evidence. We would surely have found some categorically grim evidence of such behaviour by now. Whilst I am sure that the skirmishes over land and resources would have happened, I am sure that it was already something happening between Neanderthal tribes with each other and also Homo sapiens tribes with each other if you're in a tribe and another tribe has resources that you need you will fight for them whether you're a neanderthal or homo sapiens or whether the opponent is neanderthal or homo sapiens what i personally think is likely is that homo sapiens were superior in intelligence and adaptability my evidence for this is simple the Mode 4 or Ignatian technology attributed to Homo sapiens is clearly more advanced than the Mode 3 Mousterian technology attributed to Neanderthals. So, therefore, in a competition for resources, my betting money would be on Homo sapiens coming out on top. It would be no surprise to find out that as Homo sapiens migrated deeper and deeper into Europe, the Neanderthals were pushed further and further out into the edges of its range and into isolated pockets of communities that either ran out of resources or suffered a decline in general health due to inbreeding. Either way, we know that Homo sapiens appeared in Europe and soon after this, Neanderthals disappeared. This may be how we lost the Denisovans and the Floresman too. To me, The current evidence to hand points very strongly towards this sequence of events. It is at this point in our history that we accept Homo sapiens as the sole hominin survivor. All other hominins are now gone. One of our biggest questions in relation to the most modern human ancestors is whether they had the capacity for abstract thought. For example, the earliest forms of human art point towards a spiritual purpose for their creation. The earliest artistic creations certainly predate Neanderthal extinction by several tens of thousands of years. Homo sapiens were such a successful animal that they were able to spare some time where their intelligence and self-consciousness was able to unavoidably contemplate who they were. Humans needed an outlet to be able to express themselves and they would have used art as one of those outlets. With all of their cognitive ability, it must have been very important to be able to occupy their time in such a way that they could stretch their imagination. Carving shapes into bones and shells was either for practical purposes or just a display of intelligent boredom. It is difficult to speculate why Java Man would have carved geometric lines onto the surface of shells, but we don't find an awful lot else of this age range which resembles anything similar. As we speculated before, could it have been to identify the ownership or purpose of the shell? Ochre is a naturally occurring combination of clay and sand which can appear different in colour according to the amount and type of material found within it. For example, if the ochre contains a good amount of hematite, a naturally occurring iron oxide mineral, then the ochre will appear red in colour. There is evidence from a cave at Twin Rivers near Lusaka in modern day Zambia that grinding tools were being used to create pigments from these ochres which may have been used to create body paint. These tools could date back as old as 400,000 years and the body paint may have been used for the same reason that a shark's teeth or eagle talons were modified to become part of a necklace the purpose being to identify yourself as a member of a tribe and possibly to represent your tribe as superior to your neighbouring tribes. All pure speculation but not unrealistic as a suggestion. Red ochre itself could have been used together with plant resins to create coloured paint and it is not clear when humans first started using this. Certainly we can reference Blombos Cave in South Africa which we discussed in episode 9 as a site where ochre was being used quite extensively. Although we have struggled to find much evidence of plant resins and tars we do recognise that humans there were going to great lengths to work their ochre to produce pigment of quality which they appeared to be using to decorate objects such as Shell beads and even cave walls This practice could have been taking place there As long as 100,000 years ago And showed a clear cognitive ability For purposeful and planned chemical creation South South Africa Africa. So we have referenced the artwork and materials From previous episodes So let's look at what else we can discover That is over 50,000 years old that can paint a picture, to coin a phrase, of the human capability for creativeness in its initial stages. Certainly, we cannot discount that the first engravings and pigments may have been created previous to Homo sapiens, which discredits the long-standing theory that art is restricted to Homo sapiens. Art, like most other subjects in this podcast series, is something that has slowly emerged before blossoming, the same as tool creation, speech and language, bipedalism and fire use. Our lesson is that we should stop trying to definitively date innovation and start accepting its slow and steady emergence. Hominins were so widespread that cultural changes are likely to have emerged in one or more isolated cases and then slowly spread from tribe to tribe becoming more widespread over a long amount of time. If we go back to Blombos Cave in South Africa we can discover blocks of ochre with geometric shapes engraved on it that date to over 100,000 years old. From the same cave we discover beads made from shell that date to around 75,000 years old. What we specifically mean by beads is that the shells have had holes purposefully bored into them to enable them to be threaded, possibly to become part of a necklace or a bracelet or a clothing decoration. Traces of ochre suggest that they were also colorfully decorated. Moving on to the deep cloth rock shelter in the western Cape Province of South Africa, we stumble across some very interesting ostrich eggshells. These eggshell fragments, of which there are over two hundred and fifty pieces, are coloured and engraved with geometric patterns such as crosshatches. They are thought to date back around 60,000 years and show a very advanced ability to artistically decorate with a very deliberate desire to be eye-catching. What those who have studied these eggshells have suggested is that this may not just be artwork for the sake of it, but that it is possible that the art was to represent ownership of the shell as the shells were likely to have been used as liquid containers. A good ostrich shell could carry a litre of water. Very useful in an age without glass bowls or bottles. Europe. Europe To really see the progress of art on a much more progressive level, we should visit Europe. Firstly, let's go back to Gorham's Cave a site which was introduced right at the very start of episode 7 about the Neanderthals. Many artefacts of the Mousterian tool culture were recovered there and it is for this reason that we associate Gorham's Cave as one of the last residences of the Neanderthals. Gorham's Cave also contains parietal art, which is a fancy word for artwork on cave walls. The art is in the form of engravings, clearly deliberate and quite geometric. Now this opens up an argument, as it is believed that this kind of art is exclusive to Homo sapiens. So what is parietal art doing in a Neanderthal cave? Is it possible that Neanderthals were responsible for the art? There is a standing against this theory it is quite possible that Homo sapiens moved into the area after the Neanderthals abandoned it and created the art, for which is traditionally better attributed to them through examples of similar kinds of work, especially present at the South African sites mentioned earlier. In contrast, there are no other instances of similar artwork that can be attributed to Neanderthals. However... We should not be too quick to be dismissive of Neanderthals being incapable of producing such artwork due to the fact that hominin species were quite possibly engraving objects as far back as 500,000 years ago and we must assume that their intelligence was more advanced than that of Java Man who may have been responsible for the first engravings. At the opposite end of the Iberian Peninsula At the cave of El Castillo in modern Spain we can see the emergence of a completely different kind of cave wall art. This time it is not engravings on the stone wall but humans were using red ochre to make hand stencils. So they must have been putting their hands against the wall and then using the ochre to create an outline of the hand. They are thought to be around 37,000 years old. This is one of the earliest instances of hand stencils. But the fascinating thing about hand stencils is that the one other instance that dates to this age that we know of is 8,000 miles away on the island of Sulawesi in modern day Indonesia. It is very difficult to find a convincing expert opinion as to why people started creating hand stencils and how it seems to have emerged in unrelated parts of the human world at around the same time. But it doesn't appear to be gender or age sensitive with all members of the tribe seemingly involved. If we move to the Grotta di Fumani in the north of Italy We can see more cave art of a different kind which dates back to 35,000 years ago. This time it is figurative art in the form of a weasel shaped animal created with red ochre among other bizarre figurative imagery. However this leads us into a completely different kind of figurative art which opens up a completely new avenue of thought for us. Finally, let's have a look at the essential goal of every being on planet Earth today, survival. Humans survive by eating, and in a changing global environment, humans used their superintelligence to develop technology to overcome these challenges and populate most of Earth's land. Those populations of hominins that live on coasts would have surely understood that the sea contained a rich source of food. Fish bones are unlikely to be preserved over time as well as mammalian bones, so it may be a trickier venture for us to definitely say from which point hominins were actively hunting and consuming fish. Let us look into the origins of our passion for seafood and the advancing technologies associated with it. Back in 1988, An important discovery was made at the Semliki River in the Republic of Zaire, which is now the Democratic Republic of Congo. John Yellen, who received his PhD at Harvard University in the United States of America, was working at the site alongside his wife, Alison Brooks. Their team discovered bones that had been intricately modified. The bones had been carved in such a way that the edges were now barbed in order to create edges that would lodge themselves on soft material such as fish flesh if pulled from one direction. Thermoluminescence and electron spin resonance dating of the artefacts points to an age of around 90,000 years ago. Therefore, we are seeing signs of significant intelligence and dexterity with the barbs being intricately carved from the bones. The considerable collection of catfish bones has pointed Yellen and Brooks to believe that these bones were used as harpoons. The harpoons are referred to as the Semliki harpoons, named after the river from which they are believed to have been used at, but can also be called Katanda harpoons, after the name of the Congolese territory they were discovered in. The discovery of such artefacts flies in the face of the theory known as the Great Leap Forward, which in brief is a theory that suggests that humans very suddenly advanced in their intelligence and abilities around 50,000 years ago. We have even learned during the course of this podcast that it might be slightly naive to try to put definite dates and times on first cultural emergencies when it often seems more likely that they can be more of a gradual advance in technology. Understanding the physical ability of barbed bones is something that can be applied to the technology of microliths, which often act as barbs in their own right. Microliths! Microliths! Are small sharp stone flakes which have been excavated at a great many sites of human occupation. Recognizing a microlith is quite easy. It is a very small sharp flake of stone. Identifying the intentions and usages of each type of microlith is a completely different game altogether. Let us have a closer look at these microliths and see what theories we can come up with in relation to them and our hunter-gatherer lifestyles. The first type of microlith was most likely just arrowheads that were very likely to be hafted onto a wooden spear. Sidubu Cave in the KwaZulu-Natal province of South Africa is a sandstone cave and it is very significant when looking to date potential advances in human lifestyle. It is believed that it was occupied by Homo sapiens from around 70,000 years ago. Sidubu Cave contained a bone point which is thought to be an arrowhead and it is dated to around 61,000 years ago. This has caused scientists to ask the question were humans using a bow and arrow in order to hunt in the south of Africa 60,000 years ago? The oldest physical evidence is only from the last 10,000 years. Certainly there is strong evidence that adhesive substances were being produced in the cave so that would support the idea of composite arrows being created there. Microliths are a bit of a quiz to the modern scientist. With a great big Acheulean hand axe in your hand you are under no illusions that you have in your hand they were all in one tool for striking, carving and cutting. With a microlith it's anybody's guess what you do with the thing. They are so small that you could easily hide half a dozen of them in your hand, so it would make perfect sense for them to have been created with intention of being part of a composite tool. Maybe they were attached with resin to a bone or an antler, which could have become the perfect harpoon with which to capture small animals and even fish. So it appears that the Semliki harpoons had evolved into something more complex, but at the same time, more durable. It is very clear that humans were feeling under pressure to get creative with their tool technology in order to get the edge over their prey and the edge over others who were eyeing the same prey. Prehistoric Prehistoric chemistry. Chemistry We briefly discussed the possibility of creating a prehistoric bow and arrow and how there is evidence which suggests that arrows were being created using microlithic arrowheads and that it would make sense if they were being used as part of a bow and arrow for the purpose of hunting. Recent studies also suggest that humans would have also discovered that some of the fruits of the trees suitable for the construction of wooden tools would have been poisonous. This is not something that is directly good for humans. Certainly Charles Darwin would have had an opinion of the outcome of survival of the fittest if humans that chose to eat poisonous fruit were up against humans that chose not to eat poisonous fruit. However, what about if any of those humans who recognized the fruit was poisonous was to then use that poison on their arrowheads before they were to go hunting. This is actually something which goes on in today's hunter-gatherer societies where these peoples are actually using poisonous plants to make their arrows more effective by further debilitating the animal that they are attacking. The fact that today's societies practice this is strong evidence to suggest that prehistoric peoples were doing it too. They would have been very aware of which fruit and vegetation was poisonous, so it would have been common sense to try it out on their arrows. And if it proved to be successful, then the culture would have spread out and descended down the generations. Therefore, today's anthropologists are keen to employ the services of expert chemists, to assist them in studying residues on prehistoric stone and bone flakes to find out more information. Certainly by now in our story, we are on the cusp of a revolution of agriculture, which is a dramatic change in human nature, and something that we will explore in more detail in a future podcast. Homo sapiens by around 10,000 years ago had long seen off all other human species and had become the sole survivor. They had colonised most of the habitable land on the planet, so therefore they had become incredibly widespread, and as such, societies would have been living in very differing ways according to the hunter-gatherer opportunities of each area of the world. The fauna and flora would differ dramatically from one part of the world to another. The terrain and climate would have also differed to large degrees. Humans in the Americas would have had different challenges to those in Africa, and those in Europe, and those in Australia, and those in Asia. Technologies would have developed independently, depending on where you were on the planet. Cultures would become more diverse. The study of these different cultures is something which we call ethnography, and it comes as a result of the Success of Homo sapiens. Highly intelligent, adaptable, pioneering, enterprising and not least of all by being hunter-gatherers wherever in the world that they lived. Hunter-gathering was a common thing that all humans had in common. So becoming agricultural on the face of all these facts was completely bizarre considering the risks and the work required to make it successful. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast on human ancestry. And if you enjoy the podcast and want to support the podcast, then please visit our website historyoftheworldpodcast.com, click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution. You will become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati, and qualify for gifts and rewards. If you want to get in touch with the podcast, drop me a line at history of the world podcast at mail.com. Listener messages and reviews. Just the one this week, Bill Anamosa has written in and said, Hi, Chris Hasler. That's very formal. I stumbled on your podcast while taking a long drive across Texas and I love it. Your sense of humour make this fun and you are really good at the presentation of factual data. You let us know when something is still unproven and also when an old accepted history no longer is supported by new information. You are not a stick-in-the-mud paleontologist. You challenge the old ideas. I really enjoy your podcast and will continue through to the end. I am only most of the way through volume one prehistoric period, but I will continue. I grew up near Clovis, New Mexico, and I have always thought that the Clovis first theory was bunk, bunk by several thousand years clovis is a very long way from any ocean and getting there would take quite a long time and some rough slogging across mountains when easier and more hospitable places are available thank you so much for doing this i love it well thank you very much bill yeah very interesting um, the story of um the first colonization of the americas um, there's so much there's so much we don't know isn't there there's so much there really is so much we don't know and the the uh the fact that the clovis cultures and those um those arrowheads that we found um in clovis texas um they really are just at the time were the earliest known artifacts that pointed towards any colonization of the Americas but i believe you're right bill you know you've in order to get to clovis in order to get to that to that place you you have to make a journey um from somewhere don't you and and uh, it's inevitable that there are other places that were colonized first en route um so i i believe you're right bill um thing is though like in and and I I find this when studying the evolution of the first Homo sapiens, which so this points us nicely towards the the content of this week's episode that um, the artifacts and the human bones, you know, we find them in that um, that Rift Valley of Africa because the the uh, conditions of that area, the conditions suit the preservation of um, of Artifacts and it suits the preservation of of old fossils of human bones, uh, whereas the rest of Africa is quite arid and and not very moist and the, you know, the bones will just disintegrate over time and this is, so it's probably, um, it's probably so much more that we don't know that we maybe don't have any evidence of in the modern day. So, um, so yes, it's really just a case of when, when we study things, the scientific world suddenly you know we can jump on things and say oh this is the earliest instance, so therefore it must be where it all began it's just the you know the things survived in that area that's all it is so um interesting um to think about that isn't it, it really is anyway uh that's it for another week thank you so much for listening the next episode will be uh, back to Volume 4, and the Song Dynasty of China. We're getting ever so close now to the Mongol invasions. We've been flirting with the Mongols, haven't we, for some time, and at some point we're going to actually have to um, ask them out, aren't we? We're going to have to actually date them at some point, aren't we? So uh, that's coming soon, but next, the next episode will be the Song Dynasty of China. Thanks for listening this week, and until next week, be good. The History of the World Podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. See you next time.